The sermon scripture reading is from Acts 34 through 48. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on, on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded to us, preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me open us with a quick word of prayer. Jesus, as we come to your word, you who have the words of eternal life, who spoke into existence all that is, who is the Lord of all, the judge of the living and the dead, the savior of any who come. Please, Jesus, speak to us by your spirit. Open our ears to hear what it is you want to say. Pray this in your beautiful, majestic name. Amen. If I asked you, um, where do you go to learn? You'd probably say a school, right? I mean, you'd mention Jefferson Traditional Middle School nearby, or you'd point to a high school or a college. You go to an institution of learning, that's where you learn, okay? And it's true. But if I asked you, what in your life has taught you the most? What's been actually most instructive for you? I don't think many of us are going to say our 10th grade English class. Although that was like, I love my 10th grade English class. It was one of my favorite classes in high school. If I asked you what's been most instructive for you in your life, looking back over the years, I'm guessing you would say experiences. You'd name relationships you had that were so formative on you, or circumstances you went through that, that opened your eyes to things, or suffering you had to endure. And the thing is, when we say learning, we can mean different things, right? We can talk about just learning data and information, and that's one kind of learning. And, and, but at the same time, there's also wisdom and insight. And wisdom and insight come as much from the experiences that happen in our lives as from anything else, right? Like, life experience isn't going to help you learn multiplication tables. But it is going to help you understand what is most important in life. What's actually worth spending your life on? 
It's going to help you know who God is and understand the depth of his heart and his love and his character and his majesty. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, Mark and I, we had a, a hard conversation, as you do in married life from time to time. And what struck me at the end of that conversation was how different that conversation would have gone 10 years ago when we were first married. We've had 10 years of very imperfectly but faithfully trying to love one another and lay down our lives for one another. When I got engaged to Mariko, as, as a nerd, I read a small library of books on marriage. And so I thought I knew what marriage was all about. And I knew every marriage is built on a foundation of strong trust, right? But I had to actually learn what it looks like to trust and be trusted by the very inglorious daily experience of dying to myself, laying down my life. Again, what I'm getting at here is that God speaks to us and teaches us through our life experiences and our circumstances, showing us parts of himself, showing us parts of ourselves in ways that we couldn't just by reading it in a book or learning it in an institution of education. And that's what we see in our, in our story this morning. We've come to a momentous uh, chapter in the book of Acts. This is the first Gentiles, non-Jews, becoming Christians. As far as I know, we are all Gentiles in this room. This is the first of us who became Christians. But yet, in the story of Acts, which is the story of the church, I think actually even more important is not the conversion of Cornelius, we're going to look at today, but it's the conversion of Peter. Peter didn't convert to becoming a Christian. He's already a Christian at this point. But it's him coming to understand something deep and profound about the gospel and who as a leader in the church will then help guide the church into embracing this a couple chapters later at the Jerusalem Council. And he learns it through his experiences of going and preaching the gospel to Gentiles and then seeing the Holy Spirit poured out on Gentiles and baptizing foreigners, pagans, into the church. And what this all teaches him is that God shows no partiality. But the gospel he brought is for anyone. Jew, Gentile, male, female, old, young, rich, poor, black, white. Anyone who acknowledges their need. Any who believe in Jesus Christ can have forgiveness of sins. So our outline for us this morning, just to give us an idea of where we're going. Our first point is God's preparation. Second point is Peter's revelation. Third point is God's confirmation. So um, I didn't have uh, Courtney read the whole text because it's, it's really long, so, but we're going to read it all as we preach through it. So, follow, so first point, God's preparation. It's interesting. In order to prepare Peter for this great revelation he's going to have that God shows no partiality, there's certain preparations God has to get ready for this. And so the first preparation is Cornelius himself. So follow along as I read verses 1 to 8, and we're introduced to this man named Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, and he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and have related everything to them. He sent them to Joppa. So Caesarea, it's north of Joppa, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. We're introduced to Cornelius. We hear that he's a centurion of the Italian cohort. These are just descriptions of how the Roman army organized itself. So you had legions. They were the biggest grouping of soldiers. Each legion was made up of, I think, six uh, cohorts, and then each cohort was made up of ten centuries. You know the word century is a hundred years. Well, a century was a hundred soldiers. So a centurion was the leader of that hundred soldiers. If we looked at it kind of how it would compare to our you know, U.S. Army, it would be like a captain or a major in the army. So that's Cornelius. And he's a Gentile. I mean, you know, if you were a Jew, you couldn't serve in the Roman uh, army, as far as I understand. But it also describes him as one who feared God, who gave generously to those in need, and who prayed continually. If you're a Jew and you're reading this, this is some pretty shocking language to use to describe a Gentile. It's, it, it, like for a Jew, they'd been like, wait, a, a Gentile who is pious and fears God. Aren't those a contradiction in terms? Again, I'm not saying this is right. This is just how a Jew of the time would have been thinking. It's like, kind of like saying a pious atheist. This is a, you, you can't fear God and be a pagan Gentile. But it gets even more shocking because God appears to Cornelius through an angel and tells him, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms, the good things that you've done, they've ascended before God as a memorial. God tells Cornelius that the God of the universe has heard his prayers. That's shocking, again, if you're a Jew, and this is about a Gentile. Cornelius was not a Christian, and yet God heard his prayers. That's interesting. Sometimes Christians have asked, does God hear the prayers of non-Christians? And that's a hard question, but at least this time he did. And this is, so this is Cornelius. God is appearing to him in a vision, but what I want us to note is that this is God preparing everything for what Peter is going to step into in a minute. He's tilling the ground, so to speak. He's preparing Cornelius to be able to hear what Peter is going to preach to him. This is God at work, so that when Peter enters the picture, all Peter is doing is just showing up and being faithful to what he knows about Jesus, and God has prepared everything else for him. I mean, this is God appearing to Cornelius before Peter knows who Cornelius is, before God calls Peter to go to Caesarea. And in fact, even long before this, God had been at work in Cornelius' life, giving him a desire to know God. I mean, he's, he's a God-fear, whether that means he would, and there's a technical term for a God-fear who had been someone who associated with a synagogue but hadn't fully converted to Judaism. He could be that, or it just could be he's, he was just someone who, who, who wanted to know who God was. We don't know. Either way, he's a Gentile. And God has been at work in his life, giving him a desire to know this God of Israel. Perhaps even before Pentecost, God's been at work in this man's life. We have no idea of how God is preparing those that we come into contact with every day, who's been at work in their life maybe for years. We just, we don't know. And we also don't know how God will use the small acts of faithfulness 
that, 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 that we engage in out of obedience to Jesus Christ and loving those who come into our life. We, just, we don't see the plans of God and all that he's doing, but we know this. We know that Jesus is at work. And because he is at work, and we can know that with conviction, therefore, we can steward those relational opportunities that Jesus, by his sovereign mercy, brings into our life. So God is preparing Cornelius. Again, he is the one who is acting here. But God also has to prepare Peter for this, because Peter is a good, devout Jew. And he's going to have to go and preach to Gentiles and have fellowship with Gentiles. So God's going to have to prepare Peter for this as well. This is where we get to verses 9 to 22. Again, let me read it for us. So the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I'm a good Jew. I don't do that. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, don't call common. And this happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Before we get into how God is preparing Peter here, I want to point out again, God seems to work when people pray. It, I've mentioned this before, and I hope I don't sound like I'm beating a drum, but it's, it's, just, it's, it's so prevalent throughout Acts, and I think we're given that to show us something about how God operates. But again, Cornelius, he's praying, and, 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 and he calls him a man who prays continually, and in fact, later when he recounts the story, he, he tells Peter that it was while he was praying, boom, God appears to him in a vision, or the, or the angel of the Lord. And then Peter, likewise, he's, he's in Joppa. He goes up on the, the, the roof of his house. We know that the house is along the, the Mediterranean Sea. So maybe if I could pray along the Mediterranean Sea, I'd pray more too, right? I mean, picture the image of him just looking out over the, over the Mediterranean Sea. And he's praying. He's finding time to be quiet, before the Lord. And that's when the vision comes. Now, I can't promise you that if you find time to be quiet before the Lord and pray that you will receive visions. I can't promise that. I don't think that's meant to be seen as normative. But I do know this. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, he's no longer dead, and he really does speak to us. He's alive. Again, we can have a relationship with him that is in some ways similar to a relationship we have with a human and, of course, in other ways very different. 
but he speaks to our hearts. He speaks to our inner beings. But to hear his voice, we have to find time to be quiet before him. I think most Christians in America would probably say the biggest reason we don't pray more or be still before the Lord more is our lives are crazy. We're so busy. Go, go, go. Others of us in this room probably feel like we have too much quiet in our life as it is. So, so how, how, do you, how do you do this? I don't, I, I don't know. Each of us have to figure that out for ourselves. But it's so important that we build time into our lives to be intentionally quiet before the Lord. And if the concern is that, well, it's just I'm too busy right now, that may be true. There are seasons where like, it's just not possible for us to have extended time before the Lord continue. I, I, I get that. But I just, so on an individual level, we all have to discern how do we apply that ourselves. On a population level, I'm just going to say this, on a population level, Americans, we say we're very busy, but yet we have time to watch 14 hours of TV a day. Or sorry, a week. That'd be crazy. A day would be crazy. 14 hours a week. The average U.S. adult watches 14 hours a week. Maybe we're too busy, or maybe we're not using our time well. So all I'm saying, if you have complaints, you can contact our deacons, Sean, Chandler, or Mickey. They love to hear complaints. I've actually never had anyone complain to me, so I don't know why I say that, but because um, you guys are, are, are far too gracious. But here's the vision. Here's the vision. Okay, so Peter, he's already hungry. He's waiting for them to make him lunch. He goes up on the rooftop, and he, he, he receives a very weird vision. A sheet is, is, is lowered down, and it says there's animals in it. And there's, there's a, it seems to be probably a parallel to, how, to, to God's description of creating the world when it describes the animals in there. In Genesis 1.24, it says, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. That God made all these different kinds of animals and these, these animals being let down the sheet, it, it, it uses similar language. There's, just, there's all kinds of animals. The problem for Peter, though, is that in Leviticus 11, Jews were told, you, you can't eat all the animals. There's some that are clean, some that are unclean. And don't eat the ones that are unclean. But in this sheet, there's, there's animals of all kinds. So it's a mixed bag. There's clean and unclean. And that's why Peter says, well, no, I, I can't eat these. I've never eaten something that's unclean. And in response to that, God responds, what God has made clean, do not call common. Happens three times, and the vision's over observation. We know what's coming after this, and so we can understand what this is about. Okay, it's about God not showing partiality among humans. But for Peter receiving this vision, it would have been very bizarre. And that's exactly what it says in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, Peter's like, what does this mean? I've never received a vision from the Lord, but I have talked to people who have, or at least say they have. And what's interesting is oftentimes it's like this. There'll be some image that God will press on their minds and it makes no sense in the moment. But as they go on, all of a sudden it becomes clear, oh, that's what God was talking about. And that's exactly what happens here. Peter's puzzling over this. And then the Holy Spirit, well, then the men arrive. That's a clue. And then the Holy Spirit makes it very clear. He tells him, this is in verses 19 and 20. Let me read it for us. And while Peter was pondering the vision, what does this mean? The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, 
for I have sent them. Okay, if you're looking in your Bible, it's going to be helpful here. Because he says, rise and go down, accompany them without hesitation. And that word without hesitation can also be translated without making a distinction or without discriminating. And I don't know why the ESV translates it here without hesitation, because actually in Acts 11, when Peter re- kind of tells the story again, uh, he, he, uses, he uses the exact same Greek word, but this translated there not making distinction. So in Acts 11, 12, and the Spirit told me, go with them, making no distinction. That explains what's going on. Okay, Peter gets this vision. Animals of all kinds, voices kill and eat. Peter says, I, I, won't, I won't eat that which is unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. I've made them all. They're all clean. And here God says, and likewise, go with these men who you think are unclean and make no distinction because that which I have created is clean. Don't call that which I have made clean, unclean. You see, that's telling Peter, that vision wasn't about animals, it was about people. So go with these men. These are sent from the Lord. And again, you know, there's, there's Cornelius in the story, there's Peter, there's the other Christians from Joppa. There's all these humans, but the main character in the story, y'all, is, is Jesus. He's orchestrating all of this. He's the one who, who speaks to Cornelius. He's the one who then prepares Peter. And we see this and just how everything is like timed perfectly down to the hour. I mean, you know, while Peter's in Joppa, that's when Jesus sends his angel, or whether it's him himself, not clear. He sends his angel to, to talk to Cornelius. While the men from Cornelius are, are approaching Jerusalem, that's when Peter has his vision, right? If the men had come four hours earlier, Peter probably said, no, I can't go with you. It's against the law. And then as Peter is like, what does this mean? Ding dong. It's like down to the hour. Jesus is, Jesus is the one driving all of this. Again, this is God's preparation for what Peter is going to learn and what through Peter the church is going to learn about the gospel, about how God does not show partiality. And the last preparation, of course, is the crowd that's prepared for Peter when he finally gets to Caesarea. So let's keep reading. The next day, this is in verse 23, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. That's just so beautiful. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and he fell down on his feet, and he worshipped him. And Peter lifted him and said, stand up. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in, and he found many persons gathered And Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. 
It's like Jesus has set everything up for Peter. He's just like, Peter, just go, just swing for the fences, buddy. This is all by my hand. This is what Tim Keller calls a pin drop moment. In any given sermon, people are rustling and getting up to the bathroom and moving, and, and sometimes it's just everything, the rustling just stops, and it's just so quiet, you can hear a pin drop. People are listening, and the Spirit is working. That's this moment. This is the preparation. Again, Jesus has been orchestrating this entire event. He's, he's been preparing everyone, and all Peter has to do is just show up and be faithful to what he knows about Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. And in the end, Peter's conversion and his understanding of the gospel may be as important, at least for the story of the church, as Cornelius' conversion. This brings us to our second point, Peter's revelation. This is verses 34 to 43. Again, let me read it for us. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verses 34 and 35 are the point of this whole story. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God brings his offer of salvation and forgiveness to every person. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much money you make or if you're male or female, old or young. God offers to anyone. He shows no partiality. Now, and this is a great revelation that Peter, again, through these experiences he's having, is coming to understand Now, there's a question I want to ask here because it's a little bit confusing. It might sound like Cornelius, because of what he's, the good deeds that he's done, therefore he's acceptable to God. Almost as if he's made right or saved or brought into relationship with God because he's lived a pious life. And that can't be the case because that would contradict so much of the Bible. The Bible tells us salvation is by grace through faith. It's through trusting what God has done for us and our good deeds are, are, are an act of love and gratitude for the God who saved us. Not to mention, if Cornelius was doing okay, why would God need to send Peter to preach the gospel to him? So what does this mean that he's accept, that Cornelius is acceptable for, before God? And again, we have to ask what's the big question here, and it's not how one is made right before God, how one is justified, but it's who can be made right before God. Who can be justified? And Peter answers that very clearly in verse 43. Everyone who believes in Jesus 
receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Who can be justified? Anybody. Anyone who believes in Christ and comes before him in brokenness and repentance and humbleness. So what does this acceptable mean? Well, it doesn't mean justified. It's just saying that God wants people to do what is right. And whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, God wants you to do what is right. And if a Gentile does what is right, that's acceptable to God. If a Jew does what is right, that is acceptable to God. It doesn't mean that those right actions save us. They're not salvific. But again, when a non-Christian does what is right, that is pleasing to God. God is pleased by that. But it doesn't remove the need for forgiveness and salvation through Jesus. Again, the point is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is offered to everyone without partiality. And then Peter goes on to preach the exact same gospel that he's been preaching since Pentecost, Acts 2, right? And he says, Peter has this great revelation, I now see that God doesn't show partiality. So here's the same gospel he's been preaching for the last eight chapters. He doesn't have a separate gospel for the Gentiles. It's like the same thing he's been saying, the same message. Jesus Christ came, he was, came in the power of the kingdom of God. He came into wonderful things, healed people. He preached good news, and then we killed him. And then after three days, God brought him back to life. And now Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, right? He's not just Lord of the Jews or Lord of the, he's Lord of all. He's the judge of not just the Jews, he's the judge of the living and the dead. That's everybody. And so therefore anyone who comes to him can receive forgiveness of sins without distinction, without discrimination. God shows no partiality in who he offers the gospel to. Two applications for us from the second point, from this revelation that Peter receives. And the first is that we preach the same gospel to everyone. And this is just amazing. Again, Peter is like, oh, God shows no partiality. Here's the same message I've been preaching from the beginning. So whether you have an urban, young, professional in New York City or a rice farmer in Malaysia, it's the same gospel to both of them. And even though those people may seem drastically different culturally, economically, in whatever ways, the reason why we preach the same gospel is that they, they face the two same basic problems, and that's sin and death. A Malaysian rice farmer and a you know, New York City urban, urbanite face the same two problems. What do we do with our sin before a holy God? Who will atone for what we have done for how we've neglected God or not cared about God? Who, how can we have a relationship with a God who is so good that we would be eviscerated if we were in his presence because we are not good? Well, that was answered by the death of Jesus for us. He died for our sins. How do we answer the problem of death that everyone dies? Well, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and so he bound death and he conquered it. It's good news. You know, the only final answer to those two problems of sin and death are found in Jesus. And Jesus brings his good news to anyone who wants it, anyone who will receive it. That's my first application. We preach the same gospel to everyone. Second application may not seem like it's flowing very obviously from this text, but I'll I'll try to get to it. It Don't don't fear those outside the church. Don't fear non-Christians. Uh, there's something within the human heart that, that fears people that are different from us. 
Um, and, and we're comfortable with those who are like us, whether that's people who look like us or act like us or have the same educational background, or whatever it is. There's, just, there's something within the human heart that wants to make distinctions between people. And, and, and some we're afraid of and, and some we're not afraid of. And sometimes within Christian circles, there can be a legitimate fear of non-Christians. And like, there's this fear that like, if I spend time with non-Christians, like, they'll lead me astray, or they'll be a bad influence on me, or they'll be a bad influence on my children, right? And, 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 and so we, we, we read Christian books, and we listen to Christian radio, and we go to Christian schools, and we send our kids to Christian schools, and we live with other Christians, and we wake up and realize we don't have a single legitimate friendship with anyone who's not a Christian. And part of the reason is that we're afraid we have to ask ourselves, right, is Jesus so weak? Is his gospel so powerless that if we like, engage in an authentic relationship with someone who thinks differently from us, we're going to deconvert? Like, the answers that Jesus brings to the world's greatest, deepest questions, are they so weak that our greatest fear is that we won't know what to say or We'll find ourselves in over our heads. Of course not. The gospel's for everyone, so share it with everyone. And that's going to involve relationships, friendships, real friendships with those who don't know Christ. Friendships that will challenge you and form you and make you uncomfortable and maybe break your heart because you'll love someone and there's no guarantee that they'll accept Christ. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and folks, he did, oh, he did, then Jesus brings the answers to the world's greatest problems, and we don't have to be afraid. Peter's great revelation and his own personal conversion is realizing the gospel of grace is offered freely to all people, irrespective of their religion or culture or ethnicity or political persuasion. And God confirms this revelation by saving Cornelius and his household in a very visible way. This is the third point, God's confirmation. Again, read, uh, follow along as I read verses 44 to 48. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Again, as, as Peter is preaching this gospel, Cornelius and his household, they believe. And his so obvious because the Holy Spirit is poured out on them and what exactly that looks like we're not sure I mean it says they begin to speak in tongues and they begin to praise God but it was obvious these folks were not Christians they didn't know Jesus and now they know Jesus and their lives are transformed and it's God saying yes Peter what you said in verse 35 that God shows no partiality that's true what you've preached is true and I'm going to confirm in this way by pouring out the Holy Spirit himself, showing that these Gentiles now are part of the body of Christ, a part of the church. They're fully Christians. And of course, the Jewish Christians are just 
shocked. And for, for, for these Jewish Christians that had come with Peter from Joppa, this is the world is being turned up on its head. Everything they thought they knew about who's acceptable to God, who's not acceptable to God, who we should interact with, who we shouldn't interact with, it's all like everything is being called into question by what they just saw with their own eyes. God shows no partiality. Again, one last application here. It's human to make distinctions. It is human. Like, like this is the way our brains work. We walk around and we, we categorize people. And that's not bad in and of itself. Let me, describe, let me explain. Uh, when you're walking around, you automatically categorize people as old or young. And depending on what category they're in, we interact with them differently. So if you see an adult walking down the street by themselves, you don't worry about it. But if you see a child, a two-year-old, you, and they're by themselves, you, you worry. Do their parents know where they are? Like we, distinct, we make distinctions. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Another example, if you saw someone walking down the street carrying a machete, you would probably categorize them as potentially dangerous and walk the other way, and it might save your life. Like Distinctions aren't bad. But here's what can subtly happen when we make distinctions, is we begin to distinguish between those who are good and bad. And oftentimes, it's, it's those we're comfortable with who are like us. Well, they're, they're good. And those who are not like me, those are, those are bad. And, and you might be saying, I would never say that, Mike. Well, of course you wouldn't. But I think our actions speak louder than words in who we naturally want to spend time with and who we avoid. It probably says more about who we think are good and who we think are bad. And, and folks, here's what's ironic. When we make distinctions in our heart between who are the, the good people and who are the bad people, we're making statements about the heart. And what the Bible has told us is that God alone sees the heart. And what God says is, I show no partiality. Anyone can come to God and receive forgiveness and mercy. God accepts all who come to him in brokenness and repentance and faith. Isn't our God good? Everyone is precious in his sight. No one is forbidden from coming before God. All we need is to, all we need to come before the God of the universe is to know our desperate need of his grace. That's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. God, please help us to realize how deep the truth is that we come on no merit or goodness of ourselves but we come because you are good and you've called us to yourself and that you offer that gift of grace to anyone, anyone. May this gospel of grace may it mark us in the deep parts of our souls may it give us hope when we're discouraged, may it um, provoke us when we grow content, may it form how we engage with other people, with how we love those that you bring into our lives. We thank you that you are a God who shows no partiality. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Well, every month as a church family, we take time in the service to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're going to do right now. This meal is a outward and visible sign of the grace that is shown to us in the death of Jesus Christ. And as we share in bread and juice together, it's an invitation for us to feed on Jesus in our hearts by thanksgiving. So we're not just eating and drinking, but we are drawing near to the presence of Jesus who is present among us because we are his body. It's a call for us as we face God's love for the unworthy to be strengthened by the faith in the one whose body was broken for you and me, whose blood was shed for you and for me. So this morning, I invite all who profess a faith in Jesus Christ and are living according to his word with a clear conscience to join me in participating in this Thanksgiving meal. Our tradition here at Vine Street is we first pass out both the bread and the juice, and then together as one body, we participate. Uh, we also have a uh, offering plate. Thank you at the back for a benevolence uh, fund. And that anything given in that plate uh, today is used to help folks in our family and in our neighborhood who have financial need. So with that, I'm going to invite our ushers forward to stand in front of me and let, it, let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer. Jesus, we come before you, you who are the king of the universe and yet who came to be humiliated and put to death so that we who are dead might know not life, so that we who are separated from God might be brought to the one who made us for himself. As we eat this bread and drink this juice, may it not just be physical things, but may it draw our hearts back to that day at Calvary when the morning star was snuffed out so that we might never know death in its full sense. We offer this time to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.
the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it is you that we proclaim. It is you who have captivated our hearts, who have given us hope when there was no hope, who have given us a new life and a new purpose and a new mission. It is you who are making all things new. It is you who will one day bring all things to completion. We wait for you. May our lives be yours completely. And it is your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.